Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. RT reports U.S. unveils plan to ramp up censorship. Move comes days after Elon Musk struck deal to buy Twitter and pledged to restore freedom of speech on social media. So first they admit they're lying to you. NBC News reported a few weeks ago in a break with the past, U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. Doesn't have to be solid intelligence, says one official. It's more important to get out ahead of them, the Russians, Putin specifically, before they do something. Now, U.S. President Joe Biden's administration is expanding the Department of Homeland Security's purview to include fighting speech that the government deems to be disinformation. What does this mean? Well, for insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's a national organizer for action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Thank you, Wilmer. It's good to be here. So the new body will be headed by Nina Jankowicz, whose resume includes advising the Ukrainian foreign ministry and overseeing the Russia and Belarus programs at the National Democratic Institute Lobby Group. Steve, I think there's this blurb in one of the founding documents of this country that's called the Constitution, and that blurb is called the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress or of grievances. But Steve, how can you effectively petition the government for redress if you aren't properly informed about the goings on of the government. Well, not only that, how can Congress uphold or be held subjected to what happens to the First Amendment if it's being circumvented by an unelected official in a newly created department in the DHS? Uh, I mean, there's a whole lot to unpack here. Wilmer, there there really is. And, and while this does seem retaliatory or it's framed a little retaliatory uh, as a, a fallout from the world's richest man now owning everyone's data on Twitter, uh, this is something that has been in the, the works for uh, a while now. And DHS is just building out its own bureaucracy, its own ability to further maintain control and weaponize a narrative because they've been the ones uh, for uh, that were, you know, held under the microscope due to the Snowden documents who've been data mining everyone for not just since the internet, but before that. Um, and so for them to now effectively be running the uh, ministry of information uh, is it, I don't know, I think one of the more frightening aspects of this whole Ukraine thing, to say nothing of Jankowitz, uh, to say nothing of her resume, 
uh, as an insider, a, a, you know, um, effectively a parrot for, uh, intelligence community talking points. Uh, she's a, a queen of disinformation in her own right. Well, you know, and I, here's what I think. I think, um, and yes, uh, 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 Elon Musk is the, um, richest man in the world. That being said, there are at times, and you know, um, uh, disagreements amongst various factions of the ruling class. And he's not an absolute, they're saying they don't want to, they want to, she, she's, because she's, uh, when he took over Twitter Monday, Jankowicz said, quote, I shudder to think about if a free speech absolutist were taking over more platforms, what that would look like for the marginalized community. Oh, she, you know, ever notice they always got to stand up for the marginalized community when they want to do the bidding of the inter, of the uh, uh, international um, uh, intelligence cabals. But at any rate, so even the thought that this valuable intelligence tool of social media that maybe one t- that 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 Musk would come again. He works for them with them, but he might come in and one little tiny corner of it. He may say, oh, no bots or oh, let's let the algorithm just one little thing is unacceptable. These people, they're such narcissists, they have to have total and complete complete control. And if another faction of the ruling elite says, let's just back off of this little teeny corner on the edge, they lose their minds. And I think that this is partially a response to that. It was coming because of something. But what are your thoughts on that, Steve? Well, I mean, there's, yes, to a degree, I, I, I definitely agree with that. And it's not like there's any love lost between, um, just some of the factions of the predator class. Um, I, Elon Musk has proven himself to be retaliatory in his own right. He stopped shipment of a Tesla from a guy who wrote a negative review about him. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, he, he's blocked and had banned a number of people. Um, the, the, the it, buying Twitter to me, you guys, it really looks more like the world's richest man's version of newly divorced dad going out and getting a boat. <laughs> it's a red convertible. Yeah. I mean, kind of, <laughs> you know, he just, he doesn't, he's already got a boat. He's already, you know, he doesn't have those problems. So he's got to, you know, spend $44 billion on a social media platform. I mean, and, and I mean, I don't know that his wife left him for Chelsea Manning. Like you kind of got to make that <laughs> next purchase pretty special. <laughs> You do. Ooh, that. You do. So I, I'm just spitballing here. There's one other uh, element to this that I think uh, people need to really pay attention to because it'll be interesting to see how this new body operates because when people talk about the First Amendment and freedom of speech, a lot of times what they don't appreciate is there also comes with the freedom of speech freedom from prior restraint, which we know uh, – generally as censorship. So in most cases, the government can't prevent you from publishing something. They can only punish you once it's published. That's what we learned from the Pentagon Papers case. So if they're now going to get into the censorship business, that's an even more dangerous Rubicon to cross than just violating the freedom of speech. Well, it, it is. Because it's finally removing the mask and saying we are reality. At the end of the day, that's that's what they're saying. Uh, no, there is no truth, but the truth we tell you 
It doesn't matter if that truth changes on a moment-by-moment basis. The truth exists in the moment, and it is what we say it is. And if you contradict us, or if you try to provide evidence that, that is contrary to the reality that we're providing you, um, you know, it, in the first place, we're going to remove it. We're going to make sure it never sees the light of day. If it does slip by, then you will be uh, held liable uh, as a, a dangerous agent of disinformation. Since this falls under DHS, I can only guess that in a short amount of time, we're going to see current we're going to see some form of legislation that tries to paint anyone who is a disinformation provocateur uh, as some sort of terrorist. Oh, that's, it'll be in the t- domestic terrorist law. You know what I mean? It goes yeah. right in the domestic terrorism law, sowing doubt. Because what we all we need, Steve, we need false certainty. We don't need anybody so in doubt. Hey, uh, here's an important story. Since we're opening the show, I got to I must hear your brilliance on this. Biden asked Congress for 33 billion to support Ukraine through September. Now, we know that a few days ago, Zelensky asked and I don't call him president. I call him puppet, if anything, asked, said we need seven billion dollars a month to keep Ukraine going. So Biden said seven. We'll give you eight for the next four months. Thirty three billion. And here are some wonderful things that that socialist things that are going to happen. It's going to fund Ukraine's government, support it, food, energy, health care services for the Ukrainian people. What natural gas purchases? We wouldn't want them to get cold. U.S. aid to Ukraine's economy is going to allow pensions and social support to be paid to the Ukrainian people so that they have something in their pocket. You know what? Build back better on steroids for Nazis, your thoughts about all of you thought your thoughts about all of that, Steve. Well, not only are they getting that, but they're getting all of the uh, they're getting all of Elon Musk's Starlink routers. They're getting all of of his uh, uh, Starlink satellites. There's all of these you know just unchecked weapons that are flowing in and out of Ukraine right now. I I gotta tell you. And this is coming from a guy who who is talking to you from Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, I can't think of a better casino than Ukraine right now. I really can't. They're getting subsidized by the U.S. government. You could probably go there uh, on some sort of uh, uh, George Soros Open Society Foundation visa. Maybe do a little freelance journalism for the Kiev Independent or something like yeah. that. I'm sure you could have a lovely time on U.S. taxpayer money in Ukraine going forward. Sounds like a blast. It really does. That socialism thing, that Build Back Better thing, sounds like a great idea. And Steve, if I'm sitting in the DNC or I'm sitting in the Biden uh, for 2024 campaign committee, and somebody mentions this, I, I gotta. Are you tone deaf? I mean, do you, do you really want to just throw away any hope? Because I, I don't see how even J- Nina Jankowitz can spin this to those Americans that are being evicted from their homes from those Americans that can't afford to go back to work because they can't pay childcare, because they can't put gasoline in their cars. I don't, I don't see how this one gets spun to where Americans see their tax dollars 
going into Ukrainian gas tanks while their cars sit idle in the parking spaces of the apartments that they just got thrown out of. Well, the Americans have the collective memory of a goldfish. And in a year and a half, when it's full on election season, uh, we can always call another lockdown, have a bunch of mail-in ballots, uh, and have a record voter turnout where the most people in the history of ever always vote for a guy who clearly has jello instant pudding in his head where his brains used to be. You know, I got There's one other thing to add in that money. The total will help fund Ukraine's and government support food, energy, health care services and counter Russian disinformation and propaganda narratives. I can see now that we talk about the upcoming midterms where some of this money might just be used to counter anything negative, such as, I don't know, Hunter Biden laptop story. Next thing you know, 51 whatever Ukrainian Nazis come out and say it has the earmarks of bad stuff. Your thoughts about the... Well, and and wait a minute, wait a minute, Steve. Before you respond to that, Jankowicz described the newly minted uh, board as a internal mechanism working to better coordinate the department's work to counter disinformation while protecting free expression, privacy, civil rights, and civil liberties, which to me, that right there sounds like disinformation. Go ahead, Steve. Well, it, it certainly does, but you got you to gotta hand it to them. They do try to finish out with a joke. They do. <laughs> they do. Um, I mean, this, this is this is going on right now with it, all of this is happening with, uh, you know, assumedly the, the approval or, or the, the rubber stamp of Congress. Wow. Um, there's bills in Congress right now that uh, that create the global civil asset forfeiture unit. Uh, where they're going to take the assets confiscated from Russian oligarchs because oligarchs exist everywhere but the United States. And they're always in charge of whatever country they live in, except for the United States, where, of course, there are no oligarchs because we're, you know, <laughs> representative republics. Um, <clears throat> but the, they're going to liquidate those assets and then basically use that <clears throat> to fund the, the department that we're talking about. Right now, there's also a Ukraine Lend-Lease Act that's being that's being circulated around Congress right now. We, I mean, do you need Ukraine to announce itself as a NATO state or to really join NATO or the EU if you have effectively absorbed it and made it what I don't know, cold Puerto Rico? Steve Poikinen, as always. Thank you. Cold Puerto Rico. I like that. <laughs> Thank you very much. As always, we appreciate uh, your insight, your analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, gentlemen. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. More blasts reported in Russian provinces bordering Ukraine. Ukraine reportedly used a Turkish-made drone to bomb oil depots inside Russia on Monday. What does this mean going forward? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour. So a series of explosions were reported in several Russian provinces bordering Ukraine early Wednesday, and a fire broke out at an ammunition depot in the city of Belgorod, which is about 20 miles north of the Ukrainian border. Blasts were also reported in the provinces of Kursk and Varans in the latest suspected Ukrainian attacks inside Russian territory. This while, RT reports that uh, President Putin promises lightning response to strategic threats. Uh, Mark, what's going on here? And is are, are these attacks uh, as ominous as many are reporting. If you consider escalation ominous, uh, then they're probably ominous. Um, there have been uh, several strikes uh, inside the Russian borders at uh, oil, fuel, and ammunition over the past few weeks. Uh, and there definitely seems to be uh, an increase in the last few days. Um, uh, at least two of those, uh, including most recently at Bryansk, seem to have been done uh, with a, a NATO uh, Turkish built Bayraktar uh, TB2 combat drones flying low uh, be, you know, over the border between Ukrainian and Russian territory. Uh, however, it seems that several of these other attacks, probably in Kursk and Voronezh, are um, probably a result of uh, sabotage of sleeper cells. Uh, of of Ukrainian uh, agents uh, inside Russia. That would seem to be more likely considering the distances involved. Um, now, uh, from a Kiev regime um, perspective, uh, they are in a military conflict with Russia. Russia uh, launched a military intervention against their regime in Ukraine. Um, you know, uh, at the end of February. So uh, them striking back is completely legitimate. And uh, there is no question that uh, certainly the United Kingdom has been very vocal in uh, supporting such an idea, um, uh, promoting it even. Um, however, uh, here's, here's the issue. Russia's military intervention into Ukraine uh, was composed of some 190,000 troops, uh, all of them professional contract soldiers, representing about half of Russia's professional contract combat-ready uh, battalion tactical groups. Um, Russia has another um, 600,000 uh, uh, troops uh, beyond that, uh, which the majority are um, uh, one-year conscripts. Uh, there's a, just one-year military conscription in Russia um, uh, due to uh, – and they're not allowed to be directly involved in combat areas outside of the, the country uh, by uh, existing Russian law uh, unless a state of war is declared. Russia has another – 
of course, some two million reservists it could call upon that have not been called upon so far. And, you know, that's before even getting the questions of a draft. Uh, the Kiev regime, meanwhile, has conscripted every single man and boy between the ages of 16 and 60 in the country. Um, uh, on paper, uh, the Russian intervention is outnumbered, uh, you know, by about three to one. Uh, it's even outnumbered just in terms of the regular Ukrainian military, which is some 250,000 on paper and another 50,000 uh, for the National Guard. Uh, so um, usually an attacker is uh, unless there is a, an enormous technological and military advantage is supposed to outnumber the attacker by somewhere between three to one to six to one. The reverse is the case here. Russia has a military advantage. There's no question in technology terms, uh, but that's not as great as, say, the U.S. advantage over Iraq uh, during their invasion and occupation of that country in the early 2000s. The point here is that continued Ukrainian Kiev regime attacks inside Russia could lead Russia to declare an official state of war, i.e. not just a intervention or special military operation, to access all of those military assets. The uh, you know the six hundred thousand uh, regular troops or the regular uh, uh, conscripts, two million reservists, and so on, um, that could be put into the conflict. In that case, the conflict would no longer about being a set of demands for the the Kiev regime. It would be the end of the Kiev regime. And if that's what they want. Well, then, by all means, continue making sabotage and other attacks inside Russia. Otherwise, probably best to consider your options uh, for reaching a settlement for Russia along with their demands. But that is entirely up to them. Or if it's not, then it's up to the ultranationalists and the foreign powers that really run the country. But they better make a decision because if they continue these assaults, that will give the Russian president all the domestic political capital he needs to declare a real war. Uh, and I think the Russian people are actually um, seem to be very much encouraging that the Russian government does whatever is necessary to finish this conflict to a final end rather than just with limited aims. Let me ask you this, a, a couple of things I'll throw at you. That coupled with some of the other things, you know, Poland's talking about, you know, can we nab a portion of the Western Ukraine? And very early before the um, the conflict started, there was discussion of how this thing ends up and whether or not the Russians would just say, yeah, that part over there with the Nazis, you can have it anyway. It's going to be cut off from the sea. You know, there's all these kind of discussions. Leads me to think this. I mean, the obvious. This thing is kind of coming to a military close. The big cauldron in the east is closing up and there is desperation and lots of people throwing up the white flag. That this is possible. If I'm, if I'm let's say right now Garland's in charge of this Russian military operation, I, I, I have to think they're desperate, they see what's happening, and they're trying to provoke us to do something other than continue on with what we decided 
in how we decided to do it because it's working and they're trying to elbow us, hopefully hoping they can get us angry and take our our focus off of what we're doing because they see what's coming. And I think when the cauldron finally closes, there'll be a lot of soldiers. Uh, you know, I hope they, they give up because I don't want to see young Ukrainian men die in those kind of numbers. But whatever the case is going to happen, at that point, the Ukrainian military, for all intents and purposes, has fallen. There's just really, I mean, either large pocket, even large pockets, but pockets of resistance and the dynamics change. What do you think about my view that this is a desperate move to try to maybe take their eye off the prize? Well, um, if, if that's their desperate move, I think sometimes you have to give them what they're asking for. I mean, sometimes um, I think it, when Russia initially launched uh, the intervention, I think that they were trying to do too much with too little in terms of the troops. Again, that limited 190,000 troops for the intervention along too many different military axes, right? And that led to some successes in some areas like the South, and I, I, I think some uh, disappointments in other areas like the North. Uh, but they've certainly uh, re- uh, trained with a laser focus on the Donbass and the defeat of, of the, the majority of the Ukrainian regular military uh, in the cauldron there on the outskirts of Donbass in the goal of recovering uh, all of the administrative regions, territory of, of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk for those uh, uh, Russian um, recognized uh, republics. But um, the longer this goes on and the higher the escalation cycle, and I think that the Russian government is very close uh, to declaring a state of a war, uh, which would allow them to make those assets. This conflict it will, of course, at the end be decided diplomatically, but what that diplomatic end is will be decided on the battleground. And we've already heard in the last week from the Kiev regime's foreign minister, Kaluba, that he has – the Kiev regime has no intention of a domestic uh, settlement, that it will be decided on the battleground. Okay. That's that's fair. Let's 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 go there. Um, if if Russia escalates this to a full conflict, this ends in the partition, perhaps even the complete balkanization of the former state of Ukraine. It's just a matter of where. And the longer this is drawn out and the more resources Russia feels it has to put in uh, because of escalations by the Kiev regime, because of escalation and involvement by NATO, that becomes ever greater. Already, Russia has basically announced that the south will be partitioned, Kherson, uh, which is already taken by Russian forces. That is uh, – Kherson is officially transitioning to the ruble as a payment system uh, on May 1st, and there is continued talk about having a referendum for the formation of another people's republic there along the lines of Donetsk and Lugansk. And it seems there's every possibility that the people there could decide to follow down that path. But that could just be the first. We could see the rest of Ukraine. And if indeed you know, the rumors, uh, supposedly uh, some intelligence received by the Russian government that Poland and the U.S. intend to step into Western Ukraine independent of the rest of NATO. I think that would actually be a favor for the Russian government. Let them have 
these uh, former Galician territories that weren't even part of Ukraine until uh, 1939 with Stalin, because that is where the heart of the far-right, Banderite fascist uh, sentiment is. And I have always felt it would be a mistake for Russian forces to go into Western Ukraine there. I, I think that that would actually uh, be a very fitting end to Ukraine to see uh, the uh, Maidan regime's path lead to the complete balkanization of the country into the individual statelets and having the last Western chunk gobbled up by NATO. So to that point, uh, Turkey hopes Putin and Zelensky will meet in coming days. Turkey regularly expresses its desire to host a meeting between Vladimir Putin and Vladimir Zelensky. Wishing don't make it so. Uh, yeah. So I would think, <laughs> I would think, Mark, uh, your sense of this is not happening anytime soon. Yeah, it definitely. So Erdogan is a snake and Russia, you know, I, I think they probably have to hold down their bile every time they speak to him. Uh, he's a cunning beast. But uh, not only has he been supply, continuing to supply the Kiev regime with these combat drones, which are, are fairly effective combat drones, the Bayraktars, uh, but he has now closed off Turkish airspace uh, to Russian civilian and military aircraft bound for Syria. He has already closed off the um, the Dardanelles, uh, the Straits, uh, under the Montreux Convention. He is attempting to stop Russian military access to their Russian military intervention in Syria, which in, in large part was designed to stop the uh, Turkish takeover of that country. Um, uh, there is every possibility that Russia could renew economic sanctions uh, against uh, uh, tourism, uh, produce, uh, which had a, a dramatic effect on the Turkish economy before. And and certainly they're not going to regard uh, Erdogan as any kind of neutral ob objective factor for negotiations uh, any, any longer. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for that analysis, so much for your time. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Have a good evening. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. And there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Global Times reports Australia violates other countries' sovereignty by drawing red line on China Solomon's cooperation. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a writer and professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University, Dr. Ken Hammond. As always, sir, welcome back. Hey, Wilmer Garland. Glad to be here. So the Global Times piece goes on. What right does Australia have to draw a red line between China and the Solomon Islands? If this is not violation of other countries' sovereignty, what is? Asks China's Vice Foreign Minister Xi Fang. Uh, he asked this during a video conference at the launch ceremony of the China Pacific Island Countries 
Cooperation Center on Climate Change? Not a bad question, Dr. Ken Hammond. Well, I think the answer is, is pretty straightforward. You know, what right, what right does Australia have? It's the right of, uh, of, you know, white colonializing people everywhere to tell other people what to do. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's pretty straightforward. The United States, uh, the old British Empire, Australia, you know, these countries, they're used to telling uh, other people, people uh, of, uh, of other cultures, of other ethnicities, people of color, uh, within their own countries and around the world, you do it our way or, you know, we're going to, we're going to make you pay a price. Actually, we're going to make you pay a price while you do it our way too. But, you know, it's just, this is just the same old attitude of, you know, the, 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 the rich countries, the wealthy elites of the world trying to order things in a way that continues to perpetuate their, their power and their privileges. The idea that, that anybody has a right to tell a sovereign country who they can or cannot have, you know, relations with uh, is, is just absurd. That's the whole point of sovereignty. Uh, you, get to, you get to conduct your affairs on your own basis. Uh, so clearly Australia has no right to be telling people this, especially as they pound their chest over things like the situation in Ukraine or, or someplace like that. It's a double standard. It's a it's a, 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 a blatant exercise in hypocrisy. You know, I also think that as there's other great powers in the world, specifically Russia and China, but one could argue India is, is, is on the rise, that and the contradiction of empire becomes more profound in that, you know, the U.S. is one day they literally wrote, you can go to whitehouse.gov and find this thing that says uh, Ukraine is a sovereign and independent nation and no one has the right to tell them what alliances that, oh, wait a minute, what's going on over there in so- Solomon's Island? Red line, you can't do anything in Solomon's Island. And the U.S. literally the other day implied strongly that they would consider attacking a la Grenada style the Solomon's Island should they make a decision that would reflect their independence and sovereignty. Your thoughts? Well, yeah, that's, uh, you know, the, the saber rattling is, is just, just gets louder everywhere around the world. Sometimes, uh, you know, as in, as in the situation with Ukraine, sometimes with this self-righteous posturing about non-interference and sovereignty and all that, even though, of course, you know, the, the steady, relentless extension of NATO further and further east uh, certainly is, you know, constitutes an interference uh, and encroachment on the sovereignty of Russia. Uh, but then they turn around and they say, well, but, you know, this little country here, Solomon Islands out there in the middle of the Pacific, thinking they're on their own, thinking they get to make decisions about their own conduct in their international relations. We got a message for them, which is you do what we tell you. We draw the red line and we tell you where you can and cannot cross. And if you violate that, you're going to risk, you know, our direct intervention in your internal affairs. What about the fact that this statement comes at the launching ceremony of the China Pacific Island Countries Cooperation Center on Climate Change? What this says to me is that not only is China or not only has China made inroads with the Solomon Islands, but it's making inroads with with uh Tonga and and other Pacific Island countries. So the United States, this seems to be the the kind of precursor to a much larger issue 
for the United States in the region. Well, I mean, this touches on really serious large-scale global issues. The Pacific Island nations, Solomon Islands, Tonga, Vanuatu, other other island chains out there, these are countries that are, are among the most vulnerable in the world to the impending effects of climate change, uh, you know, rising sea levels, things like this, uh, that are going to have to be addressed very, very seriously by these countries that have not got a lot of resources to spare. You know, they understand that historically, it's the it's the the old Euro-American industrial core that has generated most of the of the carbon in the atmosphere that has produced global warming that is threatening the survival of their countries they understand that and they also understand that china although certainly it has you know as a as an evolving modern industrial economy it is also contributing to uh to carbon in the in the atmosphere but it's it's doing everything it can to try to buffer that process, to try to bring it under control, to try to find alternative energies. They're the world leader in both the production of and the use of uh, alternative energies, renewable energies. Uh, so, you know, the, the Pacific Island nations looking around, uh, you know, they're looking at, well, here's the United States and the Western industrial economies that have produced this situation that threatens to, to literally inundate our countries. And here's China reaching out to say, how can we cooperate? How can we work together? What can we do to to solve this problem and to try to help you cope with the effects of things that are already in, in the process that we can't we can't just turn this off and reverse it overnight. So how are we going to adapt? How are we going to help you survive in this context? It seems to me that the, the message there is pretty, again, pretty straightforward. The United States is rattling sabers and threatening people with red lines and everything. China's saying, let's work together to solve problems which we share and which would be mutually beneficial for us. If I was out there in the South Pacific, I'd be very interested in hearing that message much more than you know, being being told that uh, my sovereignty is compromisable, depending on how it appears to the United States. I think one of the things that'll be interesting to see is does China announce an initiative to deal with the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, this eighty estimated eighty thousand tons of plastic that is floating out in the Pacific, because that's impacting a lot of the. Uh, Pacific Island chains that you mentioned and haven't really heard a whole lot of the United States announcing initiatives to deal with this. I could see China doing that and really currying favor with the uh, with the countries, uh, particularly since so many of them deal with fishing. That could be a huge, huge benefit for them. That would be that would be a really good initiative. And, and I agree. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised uh, to see China trying to get involved in that again. Uh, China, China has been working very hard to move away from uh, the fossil fuels, carbon-based uh, energy systems and production systems. They've got a long way to go. It's not like they've solved the problem, but at least they're taking it seriously. And, and you know, most of the reduction in uh, in in these uh, in these areas that's taken place on a global basis has been what's been done by China. A lot of other countries are just continuing, including ours, are just continuing to ramp it up even paying lip service while they pay lip service to these supposed targets, uh, you know, they're, they're not really doing much in practice, whereas China at least has been uh, putting its money where its mouth is. 
Let me ask you this, uh, since we are talking about, um, uh, you know, China's relationship with its neighbors, one of the tropes that the anti-China crowd puts forth is, you know, China has difficulty with so many of its neighbors and it's not getting along with its neighbors, et cetera, et cetera. And they try to expound on that particular issue. How is what is China doing and how, you know, what do you say to people who use those arguments to, you know, to, 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 you know, argue against China or to at least voice their dislike for China? Well, I, I, as, as with so many things, I, I think the, 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 the question is, let's try to seek some truth from facts here. You know, it's one thing to, to hype up the idea that there may be tensions and frictions uh, between China and some of its neighboring countries. And certainly, uh, uh, you know, the countries have their own, uh, their own histories, their own cultures, their own interests. And uh, sometimes those are not 100 uh, percent congruent with each other. We know, for example, that uh, China has disputes over some islands with Japan. We know that, uh, uh, you know, there are issues in the South China Sea where uh, other countries as well as China, uh, you know, have, have interests there. But the question is, how do those get addressed? How are those handled? How are those managed? And China has always been very consistent in promoting the idea and indeed the practice of negotiation, of diplomatic interaction, not of just, you know, throwing its weight around and trying to intimidate people, but of trying to find solutions that, that you know, are going to be mutually beneficial and, and worked out on a basis of, 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 you know, a positive kind of interaction. That, that doesn't mean those things get resolved immediately. There are still obviously lingering issues, lingering tensions, the borders with, uh, with India are an example, although that's a good case where we can see that right now, India and China are sharing a lot of common interests in terms of avoiding American domination, you know, resisting this pressure to fall in line with the American imperial line over Ukraine. I think that it's an optimistic moment in the relationship between India and China. So, you know, it's, it's yeah, of course, there are going to be tensions. There's going to be disagreements between countries. The question is, how are those managed? Is it a matter of, you know, intimidation and throwing your weight around and saying, I'm drawing a red line? Or is it a matter of saying, you know, how can we get together and resolve these differences in a way that's, that's you know, going to be mutually acceptable and hopefully mutually beneficial? There's a piece uh, on Ukraine, the world majority sides with Russia over U.S. Russia pivots to the dynamic East and fast developing global South. It opens from one point of view. The Russian action in Ukraine represents a decisive turn away from the hostile West to the more dynamic East and the global South. This follows a decade of importuning the West for a peaceful relationship since the Cold War's end. As Russia makes its pivot to the East, it's doing its best to ensure that its Western border with Ukraine is secured. Uh, Your thoughts on this change in mindset Dr. Ken Hammond. Well, again, you know, this is this is this is global geopolitics that that are 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 part of a of a huge historical process. The 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 shift away from you know this this period of American global hegemony, American global domination, the United States as the the the, the core power of a Western industrial. Uh, system that that for a long time, you know, effectively ran uh, much of the world, and and since the uh, end of the Cold War, uh, has certainly had ambitions of running the entire world. But that's that's no longer you know a viable uh, strategy. Uh, changes in in the global economy, changes in in global geopolitical relations are are underway that are just deep structural realignments that have to do with 
dispersion of productive technologies, all kinds of things. So you know, a multi-centric, multipolar world, a world where there is no one single dominant place, uh, I, I think for many people around the world, that's a very attractive, a very desirable direction for things to be moving in. The existing core, of course, the United States and its its minions in, in Europe and, and a few other parts of the world, you know, they're opposed to that. They want to hang on to their power. They want to hang on to their ability to extort wealth from the rest of the world. And they're, they feel very deeply threatened uh, by these changes that are taking place. They can't really stop or reverse them, but they're making them as unpleasant as they possibly can. And this kind of encroachment on Russia that has that has eventually triggered this response in Ukraine uh, is just typical of, of you know, the, the, the sort of monomaniacal approach that they have to global affairs. Of course, Russia is going to be interested in in dealing with relating to other countries that don't demonize it, don't threaten it, don't, you know, have an agenda of trying to suppress it. So, yeah, other countries around the world look at that situation. They don't want to be bullied by the U.S. So there's there's an obvious convergence of, of interest uh, far beyond just Russia and China. But, you know, the majority of people in the world have governments that have refused the American agenda here. And that's, you know, that's good news for Russia. Dr. Ken Hammond, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Always glad to be here. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Sputnik News reports Washington-Warsaw plot reunification of Poland and western Ukraine. Russian foreign intel chief says that Poland is mulling, deploying its peacekeeper forces in some regions of western Ukraine under the pretext of protecting them from Russia. This is according to Russian Foreign Intelligence Service Chief. What does this mean? Well, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and author of Scorpion King, America's Suicidal Embrace of Nuclear Weapons from FDR to Trump. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War, and from 91 to 98, served as a chief weapons inspector with the U.N. in Iraq. Scott Ritter, as always, Scott, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. Poland and Washington are working on a plan to, quote unquote, reunite Poland with Western Ukraine. And the uh, Russian Soviet intelligence chief, Sergei Narishkin, says that the first stage of the purported reunification could be the deployment of Polish troops in Western Ukraine. Scott Ritter, uh, help us understand why this, why now? Well, I mean, the, uh, the Poles have been talking for some time now about um, creating a situation where they can keep Ukrainian refugees in Ukraine. Um, right now, you know, as this war in eastern Ukraine reaches its culminating point, uh, there have been estimates that, you know, up to 9 to 10 million 
uh, Poles, uh, one quarter of the uh, nation's populations, could become refugees. And frankly speaking, Poland is the um, number one destination, and Poland can't absorb anymore. And Europe doesn't want to absorb anymore. And so uh, what Poland is thinking is that by sending so-called peacekeeping troops in on a humanitarian mission of creating a safe haven uh, for Ukrainian uh, refugees, uh, Poland will, one, provide, you know, useful services to these people who've lost their homes, who were displaced, and two, protect Poland from being, you know, flooded, overwhelmed with uh, these refugees. So that's the thinking. This would not be a NATO force. NATO has made it clear that it is not getting involved in, um, in, in Ukraine because that could bring about World War III. This would be a Polish national initiative, similar to what Turkey did uh, in Syria uh, when, it, when it, you know, crossed into Syria to create a humanitarian buffer zone. Um, you know, and Turkish troops subsequently entered combat against Syrian army and later the Russian Air Force. Uh, that was not a NATO conflict. Turkey didn't get to say, hey, we've been attacked. You have to come to our assistance. Turkey made a decision to send those troops in, not under NATO cover, but as national forces. And that's what Poland's considering now. They're in a desperate situation. Um, the, 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 this refugee issue is a a very critical issue. It's one that I, I don't think the West is uh, fully appreciated, um, you know, the cost to Poland and indeed to Europe that these uh, refugees bring. And um, it also allows Poland to um, seize the initiative. Right now, NATO is very much on its back foot when it comes to Russia. Uh, you know, the Russian military offensive in the east is uh, proceeding uh, in a manner that's uh, solely beneficial to Russia. And so this allows Poland to get inside the Russian decision-making um, cycle, so to speak, uh, to take the initiative, make Russia react to it. And it would be basically done in a way that doesn't have Polish forces directly confronting uh, Russia. You know, this only became possible when Russia withdrew from the Kiev region. Um, prior to that, uh, the, the forces would have been too close to proximity. But now that the Russians are primarily located in the east and the south, uh, Poland believes that there is sufficient space between whatever buffer zone it creates and uh, the Russian forces to enable this to be set up without risking, um, you know, a major escalation of uh, of combat. The the real risk comes here is is this a humanitarian gesture, meaning that Poland moves in and then Poland will eventually leave, or is this what the Russian intelligence um, commander said um, a a, a carving up of Ukraine. Uh, you know, the West has been uh, railing on Russia for, you know, taking away, for violating Ukraine's sovereignty, seizing Crimea, the Donbass, and other regions. Um, and one of the cornerstones of European security since the end of the Second World War is the issue of, um, you know, the inviolability of borders. Um, once you get in the game of erasing borders and redrawing a map, where does it stop? Um, and Poland has to be careful here because if Poland wants to play games in terms of re re retaking territory that it, w it once owned prior to World War II, what's to stop Germany from doing the same thing about Silesia uh, in, in, the, in the Polish West? So um, I don't think Poland is, is going to be, and I don't think Europe would support Poland um, absorbing Western Ukraine, but I do see Poland um, 
considering um, sending troops in to create your peacekeepers in to create this buffer zone. You know, Scott, a couple of things. <clears throat> I think it also shows that for all of the bluster, oh, Russia's losing and, you know, the the the, the valiant uh, um, Ukrainian army is taking out columns of Russian tanks every day. Um, they know the truth and they're trying to deal with reality while they put forth a false narrative, notwithstanding Russia's decision whether or not to, um, to turn um, Poland's troops into rubble, which they certainly have a you know have the capability to do should they should they should they decide so. I, I, the other part of this that is so huge is the financial cost. Uh, we, you know, there's an article out today now that the um, the U.S. is sending is, is is looking to send 33 billion dollars, basically, to completely float Ukraine to pay their pensions, to pay you know to keep the lights on, health care, all the things that they'll never give us. Um, but the Cost uh, Poland's not a wealthy country to feed and house and take care of all of these millions of Ukrainians uh, that are pouring into Poland and other places. They instigated and pushed this thing, and now they have an economic disaster, not just the gas, not just the inflation, but the cost of taking care of and feeding these uh, refugees, and of course, they're you know saying, well, we're going to pay the cost for um, for Ukraine. They've created a monster, I think, that's economically gotten out of hand. Also, your thoughts on that? Yeah, this is um, this this is problematic for um, the Biden administration and for Europe, so to speak. You know, the American public right now is, I, I think, sympathetic towards Ukraine um, and and the Ukrainian cause. But when you start attaching real money to this war, uh, I think um, you're going to see the American public start to ask, you know, more and more questions about what it is we're trying to accomplish, who it is we're fighting for. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't take much to dig back to 2019 and find a, a Time magazine article that details the atrocious ideology of the Nazis and how they had infiltrated every aspect of the Ukrainian government. Um, but today, we've whitewashed that. Today, you know, we pretend the Ukrainians are these, you know, this, this, this wonderful democracy where the people think and act like we do. Uh, we ignore the fact that the Ukrainians have turned a blind eye to uh, minorities and Russian speakers being saran-wrapped naked to polls and abused with their faces painted green. Um, you know, that's not the action of a rational thinking democracy. That's the action of a sick ultranationalism that has infected pretty much the totality of Ukraine. And once this reality uh, is, is exposed and absorbed by the American public, I don't think you're going to see people rushing to, uh, to spend, I think they're, they're talking about up to $7 billion a month on, um, on Ukraine, especially when we have potholes here, we have people without health care, we have, you know, uh, people who are losing their jobs, um, and, and, and Europe is in no position. I mean, now that Russia is starting to turn off the gas spigots, uh, the, the economic consequences of Europe's signing on to Joe Biden's sanction program are going to hit home even harder. And, uh, you know, Europe's going to have a hard time making its own pension payments to its own civilians, let alone underwriting the pension plan of, uh, of Ukraine. So I, I think this is... Uh, has the potential of becoming a political Achilles heel for the um, for the United States and Europe. 
RT reports that President Putin promises lightning response to strategic threats. He warns that Russia won't hesitate to use weapons that no other country possesses to defend, it, to defend itself. And he's warned outside forces against interfering in the Ukrainian conflict, again, promising a lightning speed response. Uh, your thoughts, uh, I would say this is not a good sign. Scott Ritter. Well, a lot of people have taken this to believe that uh, Putin's threatening nuclear attack, and I don't believe he is. Um, first of all, Putin, it was the Russians who pushed the United States and Europe and the permanent five members uh, to uh, reaffirm the, um, the, the Reagan era and Gorbachev uh, commitment that um, there will there will be no use of nuclear weapons, that they, no one's going to use them. Etc. The nuclear war cannot be won. Um, and then when you read Russian nuclear doctrine, uh, it, it doesn't call for uh, the preemptive use of nuclear weapons in any situation other than uh, it does. First of all, it doesn't allow preemptive use of nuclear weapons. It allows nuclear weapons to be used in case of attack by nuclear weapons on Russian territory or um, uh, conventional military actions uh, that threaten the existential existential survival of Russia. Um, the lightning speed to me is the key term here. And I think he's talking about hypersonic weapons. And I think what he's saying is, you know, uh, that you know, right now NATO is operating in command posts and bunkers plotting against Russia. And when these plots become reality and the reality manifests itself in dead Russians, that Russia will be able to respond, um, with lightning speed uh, to reach out and touch NATO anywhere it wants to at any time it wants to. Um, and Russia will not hesitate to do so. And I, I think NATO may wake up one day to find, uh, you know, a, a command posts, uh, NATO headquarters and uh, in, in, in other facilities, Ramstein Air Base, where as we speak, there's a major conference taking place um, with Ukrainian military leadership on how to extend this war, expand this war, how to bleed Russia white. So um, that's what I think Russia's talking about. And NATO should uh, take this threat very seriously because, uh, the, the, again, lesson number one that anybody should take away from this, this whole uh, war is Russia don't bluff. Putin don't bluff. And when he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks very much. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Al Jazeera reports Israeli air raids in Syria kills nine. Israel is believed to have conducted hundreds of missile attacks in Syria, but rarely discusses them. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf, as always, Laith. Welcome back. 
Thank you for having me. So it's reported uh, Israeli air raids near Syria's capital, Damascus, have killed nine combatants, among them five Syrian soldiers, in the deadliest such raid since the start of 2022. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights said an ammunition depot and several positions linked to Iran's military presence in Syria were among the targets yesterday. Laith, who are these so-called combatants? And what's really going on here? You know, uh, I wouldn't trust the uh, statement by the observatory, which is a one-man show based in London. Uh, You know, in fact, uh, every time there was casualties for the Iranian uh, and or Hezbollah forces in Syria, they uh, immediately and proudly announced their martyrs and or they're injured. So up until now, we haven't heard any statements from uh, anybody but the Syrian military who announced they're dead and injured. And so uh, it's clear uh, there's uh, around uh, five people who are martyred, uh, all Syrian soldiers, and another eight that are injured. And as you rightly noted, this was one of the uh, deadliest uh, attacks on the Syrian positions by the Zionists in the last year. And uh, <clears throat> the you know it shows you that the constant attacks by the Zionists on the positions south and uh, of, of Damascus, uh, specifically about the uh, anti-air defenses that the Syrian military has been rebuilding in the region, are uh, the main target to be able to hit uh, such uh, a military uh, warehouse as as they're claiming. It's it's only because of the years of constant attacking of air defenses of Syria by the Zionists. But we should be expecting that the response of Syria and Iran, for that matter, and Hezbollah should be coming uh, after the elections uh, unfold in Lebanon in two weeks. You know, again, we see the hypocrisy that's created by, and I hate to bring this up all the time, but the Ukraine crisis and the response. I don't see, uh, the last time I checked, Syria is an independent democratic nation. I don't see all of the people running around now with the Syrian flag around their Facebook page, with the I stand with Syria, with the um, you can't invade the sovereignty of a democratic nation. None of that, that only applies when the U.S. empire says, well, that's an adversary. There's just this is the Rubio rules based international order, which basically says we can do whatever we want. Our vassal states can do whatever they want and attack anybody. And then we'll just cynically use some moral high ground whenever we choose. Uh, Leith. Yes. And, and the situation in Ukraine, of course, is is making it easier for people to recognize that reality. Much of the people that have suffered under the invasions of the United States and uh, its, its provinces uh, in Europe <clears throat> over the last 30 years, have always understood that, uh, that, you know, the hypocrisy of uh, human rights and democracy that uh, is only projected and never applied. Um, and therefore, we saw these, you know, millions of people being killed by the United States and tens of millions made into refugees, a huge swaths of this planet made uninhabitable uh, by uh, depleted uranium and, and mass uh, munitions. And here we go. Now we are being told that uh, the United States is the uh, protector of democracy and human rights. And as we see 
its actions on the ground conflicting with those statements in uh, Ukraine, um, I think it's becoming harder and harder for the elite in the West to even uh, keep their own population sedated. What impact is this having, as you can project, long-term on the balance of power in the region? And all of West Asia right now is in flux, and uh, it's hard to predict where things are going to go because the um, different players that are part of the imperial order, the vessels in the region, are becoming more and more unpredictable uh, and irrational uh, because of the withdrawal of the uh, American troops from Western Asia and its concentration on uh, its um, military efforts against China and Russia. That's leaving the vessels uh, like the Zionist colony and the Saudi uh, royalty really worried and therefore because they are not able to formulate a independent international strategy or regional strategy that uh, could that is not beholden to imperialist uh, dictates they're not able to come up with solutions that are good for them therefore we should be expecting more of these illogical attacks by the Zionists on Syria and or on Palestine and on Lebanon. And we should be expecting a trigger uh, that uh, should uh, lead to something um, that could finally bring a new balance of power in the region. Right now, we're in a flux. And up until now, nobody has filled that vacuum. Uh, European officials, uh, responsible state graph says European officials say stop dawdling and pass the JCPOA. More than 40 former top European officials, including former foreign and defense ministers from more than a half a dozen countries, have called on the U.S. and Iran to quickly conclude their long negotiations and return to full compliance with the nuclear 2015 nuclear deal. Um, To me, when I look at this, it's another indication that the Europeans have abdicated their foreign policy to the Biden administration, the most incompetent and corrupt incompetent, uh, corrupt group as there is on the face of this earth today. And in my opinion, I just see no, no avenue in which the Biden administration pursues um, getting this deal back in, in compliance. Your thoughts? Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. And uh, as as we, if you connect that to what I just said uh, about the developments happening in all of West Asia, their connections to the Ukraine, you can see clearly that uh, there is no going back. We're, we're all rolling down this hill and the momentum of this uh, snowball it's just going to continue to grow and the size of the snowball. And um, as these uh, regional battle zones like Ukraine, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Iraq, Palestine, all of these, as these uh, supposed to be regional conflicts start spilling on each other, we are becoming, uh, you know, reaching a stage that is impossible to. Uh, stop this momentum like a, it's a train a freight train that is loose and so we should uh, be expecting much upheaval in the next six months more than 40 top officials including former foreign and defense ministers called for the u.s to and iran to conclude their uh, negotiations and 
calling on the two parties or stating that the two parties risk entering a state of corrosive stalemate. But Iran and the United States are not the only two signatories of the agreement. So to Garland's point, the other, I think it's five countries, they should just sign on and move on, especially if they wanted to exert another level of leverage over the United States as it relates to the sanctions that are impacting them as it relates to their ability to access Russian oil. That If they were strong, to me, that's what they would do. Your thoughts, Lee? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the JCPOA was signed by Russia, China, the United States, Germany, France, uh, the, the UK, and the United Nations. So <clears throat> what we have right here is actually everybody is still signatory to the JCPOA except the United States. So if there was actually uh, sovereignty and independence in Europe, those European signatories, Germany, France, the, the United Kingdom, would just abide by their uh, own obligations and deliver on them if there is no ability to sign a new deal with the United States. We're not trying to right now sign a new deal with everybody else. Iran isn't trying to sign a new deal with everybody else. We're Everybody is trying to right now find a deal that is acceptable to the United States. Um, but if the United States doesn't, I am sure the Europeans will also not deliver on their obligations because they are not sovereigns. They have been occupied since the end of World War II. There's 60,000 American troops just uh, surrounding Berlin. Do you think that's an independent uh, independent capital of a state when there's 60,000 American troops surrounding it? So, of course, they're not. And uh, I think the uh, negotiators in the Iranian team and the leadership in Iran know all of that uh, very clearly. Yeah, they've, let's just say the the, the, uh, the Europeans have given power of attorney when it comes to forward policy to the United States empire. Um, Antiwar.com says, Iran courts Iraqi Kurdish Sunni leaders to abandon Sadr. Iran, Iran's still hoping to salvage its own coalition bloc. I don't know how much truth, truth there is to that, but your thoughts on what's happening with the Iraqis attempting to form some kind of a government? Yeah, it was uh, surprising to see the uh, Speaker of the House, Halbus, uh, the Speaker of the Parliament in Iraq, uh, who is uh, Sunni, uh, leading the biggest Sunni bloc, actually go to Tehran uh, yesterday and uh, visit uh, and, and, and meet with his counterpart, the Speaker of the Iranian Parliament. And uh, in, in doing his meeting, multiple new um, Sunni personalities that have been kind of retired out of uh, politics for a while, came back to the scene and are calling for a national uh, coalition government that includes all the political faction, a salvation kind of government. And so that tells you that uh, Iran uh, has managed somehow to breach the wall that the Saudis and the Emiratis have built uh, in terms of financing all the Sunni political uh, parties in uh, Iraq to and and creating a schism between them and the Shia uh, counterparts. Um, so it's a good achievement for Iran. We'll see how this unfolds in the next few days and weeks as uh, the pressure mounts for 
uh, creating a new government and uh, naming a new president and a new prime minister. Understanding that the U.S. has not allowed Iran to operate as a sovereign, uh, what's your projection? Do you have any any insight into how this shakes out in the months going forward? Yeah, it's very hard in Iraq uh, now. If there is really no government, uh, there part of the country is out of its control in terms of the Kurdish regions. Uh, there is militias everywhere. Uh, is the United States going to allow the federal government, whatever it would, if it's named, to actually? Uh, control its territory. That's a big question, and I think the all of this will depend on uh, if the American occupation continues, or is it, uh, or would the Americans capitulate and leave the country as requested uh, by its uh, parliament uh, two years ago? Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You're listening to the Critical Hour. On Radio Sputnik, I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Biden asks Congress for $33 billion to support Ukraine through September. The $33 billion includes a request for for $20.4 billion in additional security and military assistance for Ukraine, as well as additional money to fund U.S. efforts to bolster European security in cooperation with NATO allies, as well as other things which we'll touch on quickly. What does this say about the administration's concern for Americans who can't afford gas and don't have pensions? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So uh, Biden says it's not cheap, but caving to aggression is going to be more costly if we allow it to happen. Out of this $33 billion, there's a sum of $8.5 billion to help support the Ukrainian economy, support food, energy, health care services. These are things that Americans can't get. Dr. Linwood Tahi. I think uh, this uh, this is uh, a signal of a couple of things. One, um, that uh, the the war effort uh, uh, that the the uh, EU and American support for the war effort in Ukraine is is looking like it's going to last for a while. Uh, there's an estimated seven billion per month that will be necessary. And that sounds very much like Iraq 2.0, you know, uh, nation building, which of course went on and is still going on in terms of, of U.S. support. Uh, and uh, that $7 billion per month is probably just an entry fee. It'll continue to go up as, as uh, the Ukrainian government uh, needs to be uh, stood up and as uh, contractors need to be hired in order to rebuild things and, and, and so forth. Now, uh, in this country, as, as you've just said, there are things, of course, that U.S. citizens uh, 
uh, can't get. We, we don't have uh, universal pensions. Uh, we also don't have a universal health care and uh, universal child care and these other things, which which this money to Ukraine is intended to to, to support. And and so uh, while uh, the U.S. is suffering from capitalism, uh, apparently Ukraine is going to be moved into the socialist vein and, and all expenses are going to be paid. Well, you know, um, basically, uh, the good news is uh, Joe Biden found a way to institute the Build Back Better plan on steroids. The (laughs) The bad news is it ain't for us. When we look at some of the things it says it's going to be used for to fund Ukraine's government, support food energy, and health care service for the Ukrainian people. The U.S. aid to uh, Ukraine's economy, and this is directly from the article is going in CNBC, is going to, listen to this, going to allow pensions and social support to be paid to the Ukrainian people so that they have something in their pocket at a time when Americans got or something for a year, and that we were told we were going to get $2,000. They cut back on that. So at a time when inflation is rising, when gas prices are going up, I can see things like this as people start to complain, causing unrest. And, and, And one other thing I'll say, and this is why empires fall apart, because it gets so expensive to float the the distant tentacles of the empire that the center, the body of the empire starts to become a ramshackle and there's uprisings. Your thoughts on all of that? Yes, I, I think the, um, the, the, um, the Biden administration is, um, you know, not has not been able to to get uh, uh, Joe Manchin and, and Kristen Sinema to pass the Build Back Better plan, which would have provided uh, many of these things for American citizens. And I I am not seeing that the U.S., that the the typical U.S. citizen is really going to be long term that supportive of this type of process in 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 Ukraine, Uh, particularly by comparison when uh, gas prices are going up in the U.S. and food prices are going up in the U.S., uh, energy prices in general. While uh, this bill will will make it possible for Ukrainians to buy whatever gas they need, uh, whatever food they need, uh, and uh, and in fact uh, create a, a welfare state in, in Ukraine when when such a state is is uh, you know anathema in in the U.S. and and so I, you know, I I suspect that the Biden administration is doing this because they have to do something. They can't just. Uh, walk away from Ukraine and admit that that the Russians uh, have won, uh, but but they're also looking at these midterm elections and uh, I guess foreign policy. Since domestic policy hasn't gone very well, if you implement the same domestic policy on a foreign basis, uh, then apparently that's that's the last last um, uh, shot for the for the Democrats to say that they're doing something. But as you as you point out, they're not doing it here. And I don't think American citizens are going to go for that very long. And I just want to follow up to the point uh, you, you said at the uh, at the top of the conversation that this is an indication that this uh, this this uh, conflict is going to go is going to last for a, a, a number of months. I, I would say that to me, this is a recognition by the Biden administration that this thing is over and that the. Uh, and that Ukraine is lost, and that in order to prevent 
uh, total internal unrest within the Ukraine, the United States is going to put gas in the cars, food on the table, and light in the homes. Otherwise, all hell would break loose in Ukraine. Yes, I I I, I, I agree with that, and uh, just from a different, little different angle. When I called it Iraq 2.0, you know, uh, there was the idea that Iraq was going to be a short-term situation. Uh, when it when it turned into a long-term uh, nation-building situation, money just kept flowing into Iraq uh, to prevent total collapse and uh, I guess maybe loss of face, if you want to say it, uh, from the from the Bush administration and not being able to actually raise a nation. And then you go month to month and month with your payment and it just escalates and gets out of hand. Eventually, as in Afghanistan, you have to get out. But in the meantime, you've spent trillions of dollars uh, in a foreign country that could have been spent here uh, building the uh, the well-being of American citizens. Uh, let me let me add one thing too, and then and then take this uh, to to a, a, another uh, uh, subject that's important, and that is number one: if you know anything about the level of corruption in um, uh, uh, historically in Ukraine, the other part of it is this: not a dime of that is ever going to get to the people at the. And you know how that's happened when we put puppet governments in Africa, so many places. These funds come in. And in Ukraine, it is going straight to Cyprus, to shell companies, Guernsey, the Isle of Man, you name it. That money will be laundered into the hands of the Ukrainian oligarchs so fast that uh, you won't know what happened. And it, 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 won't be, it won't be just Ukrainian oligarchs. This, yeah. this is the oligarchy around the world. Apparently, uh, also, Biden is, is uh, asking for change in the criminal law to make it possible to sell off these Russian oligarchs' assets that have been seized now. They will be purchased by other oligarchs, just not Russian oligarchs. Yeah. And so this is a this is a grab for for not just Ukrainians, but for everyone uh, who is in, in the billionaire class. Wow. Well, uh, Janet Yellen was speaking at the Atlantic Council, which, for those of you who don't know, is basically NATO's um, think tank, and she described how the war would create fundamental changes in the world economic uh, order. And um, the two, uh, let me add the add to two, two, two things. One other thing to it, um, there are basically a number of articles that is coming out that are saying that the um, Europeans or the EU is is admitting that the sanctions against Russia didn't didn't work. Put those two things together, Doctor uh, Tawhid. What do you think that means? Yeah, I, I think I think this is an admission that that the U.S. has has lost control. Um, now it's 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 kind of getting ahead of the of the of the uh, avalanche that's coming. Uh, we we see that China and Russia and uh, uh, the Eurasian uh, uh, countries and and also uh, countries in South America and Africa are are moving closer together in terms of de-dollarization, in terms of either using uh, uh, yuan Chinese yuan or using their own. Uh, sovereign currencies to do trade trading with each other, which takes them uh, effectively and uh, off of the dollar system. And when you see that coming, you can either act as if um, um, it, it was a surprise, or you can you can do what what Yellen I think Yellen is doing here in trying to say that oh this this is okay well we we got a solution to that, and uh, wealthy countries will will just just trade with each other, and everything will be okay. Um, so, so I think this is an admission that they can't control this process of de-dollarization or the process of, of the countries that are going to continue to trade with Russia and China. They, they've lost control of that, and so they're declaring control of what they can uh, possibly have some control of. 
But I think the control is, is, is not even there with European countries because the European countries uh, have to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to become vassal states uh, 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 in, in trading with the U.S., which means high-cost trading, or they're going to try to continue to have relationships with their former colonies from which they get low-cost commodities and labor. And, and, and so the, the EU is, uh, is, this is not just a multipolar world between the U.S. and Europe and Eurasia on the other side. Uh, Europe is going to be a separate, uh, uh, it's, it's separate to pole in this process. And so we have uh, Eurasia, uh, 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 Europe, and, and the U.S. in terms of competing uh, enterprises. I, I think it's also incredibly telling, uh, as you just touched on, Yellen's uh, speech describes how the war could and she could create <laughs> fundamental changes in the world economic order that prioritize security concerns over economic integration. And her central concern was lack of international cooperation with the U.S. effort to economically isolate Russia. That says to me, Janet Yellen is admitting the game is over. Yeah, admitting that the game is over, but pretending that you already had another plan instead of being forced into this position because your old plan didn't work. This is plan B. And, and trying, to, trying to move the goalposts so that it, you don't have to admit that the game is over. Uh, or let me throw this out. Could it be that she is trying to do real politics and starting the opening kind of message to get the message through to the knuckleheads and, and neocons that she knows won't listen to her? That one, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think no. I, I think I think that exactly would would be uh, typical of of Yellen's character in in not going with the neocons or the neolibs. Uh, in general, and uh, taking this opportunity as Treasury Secretary to point a new direction that will perhaps avoid complete disaster, um, uh, but uh, but makes makes some di- diplomatic relationships possible, uh, even perhaps possible with China. Although I, I think that uh, that uh, that'll be a stretch. Uh, Common Dreams has a piece: Universal Policies Key to Economic and Social Recovery. As we look to recover, we have opportunities to imagine what is possible and rebuild. Uh, We're running out of time, but part of this is really frightening. Across U.S. counties, the average living wage is $35.80 an hour for a household with one adult and two children. And saying that depending on the location, it could dip to a minimum of $29.81. That means all U.S. counties the average worker raising two children would need an average increase of 73% to earn a living wage. That, to me, is frightening. Well, you know, the, the, the Fight for 15 movement has put um, the, um, the, the minimum wage level at $15 an hour. Many people think of that as a living wage, but it is well below uh, a living wage. Even if the, um, if the minimum wage, which is now seven twenty-five. Had had increased at the rate of inflation, the minimum wage would be at about twenty four dollars an hour, and so a living wage is is much higher than that. And that the average increase that uh, folks would need to get to a living wage is at seventy three percent, but in many cases it's it's more than two hundred percent of an increase that families would need to get to a, a living wage, 
And uh, in a, in a, that, that living wage would take care of things like child care. Uh, it would take care of, of, of health care and other kinds of essential things that people are going without because they don't have a living wage. It's not just food and energy. It, it's also those additional uh, support that, that certainly families with children need if, if their children are going to be healthy. Well, it's really nice to know as we get out that even though the United States government doesn't have the budget to support those people needing that wage, but we can send eight and a half billion to support those in the Ukraine. So long as somebody gets it, that should be consolation enough for us. <laughs> Dr. Linwood Dahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. And we look forward to having you back. Yes, thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We're back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is a piece in Responsible Statecraft entitled, The American Media is Failing Us on Ukraine. As the U.S. moves toward a proxy war against Russia, which I think we're already there, <laughs> reporters aren't asking tough questions about what that actually means. Well, what does this mean for the American people going forward? Let's turn to our next guest to get that answer. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of The Battle of Ukraine and the War. It's part of Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So following on with your piece, The Battle of Ukraine and the War, it's part of your thoughts here on American media failing the American people. Well, this is a, a precisely the issue. That is, what what is it? What's the context that that gives this situation meaning? What is it? You know, and if everybody pre is presented with, oh, there's a war that started on February 24th with when Russia invaded Ukraine, then that has a certain kind of that that there's certain kind of things that follow from that. But actually, there's a war that's been going on for a long time, and it's been military, and including in Ukraine. Now, the Ukraine became a battlefield in that war in 2014 with the, Maiden, the American instigated Maiden coup. And since then, they've been building it up militarily. It's been de facto a part of NATO. It, the Ukrainian military has been exercising with NATO, and American and NATO, NATO officers are training their Ukrainian military and arming it. And from Russia's point of view, this has been uh, a, a war since really 1999 with the war in Yugoslavia. And, you know, it, it progressively encroaching on Russia and threatening Russia militarily with the expansion of NATO and the stationing of, stationing of first strike, potential first strike weapons. And Ukraine was the last straw of this. Okay. And this is what Lavrov just said. He said, it's not, this, this quote hasn't been reported in the American press, but it's quite clear. Our special military operation aims to put an end to the reckless expansion and reckless pursuit of total domination by the United States and the rest of the Western world on the international stage. So this is what it's about. This is the war. Ukraine is a battle in that war, okay? And it's a battle that was uh, brought to a head by the, uh, the coup in Maidan and the, 
the attack and the, the civil war and the attack on the Russian-speaking and the Russian dom- uh, ethnic areas of the Donbass, okay? And Russia decided in February to recognize the Donbass republics and to come in to, to uh, defend them from a likely in, imminent uh, attack by Ukraine, by, by the Kiev regime. So this is what's going on. And this is the proxy war that's been going on for, you know, since the demise of the Soviet Union. And the purpose of the goal of the United States is to weaken Russia. This is exactly what Austin just said and what Blinken is saying. And it's ultimately to weaken and dismember possibly Russia. And Russia knows that, and that's what they're fighting about. And unfortunately, Ukraine has become the, uh, uh, the deciding battlefield about that. But it makes the resolution very difficult because the answer to this is either Russia, Russia surrenders or, the, or the, essentially the United States retreats, is forced to retreat in a way that will never stop in its uh, 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 quest for dom- unilateral domination of the world. You know, Jim, uh, it's funny. I, I, my th- immediate thought was, and it is to weaken Russia, but of the three kind of maybe two and a half parties involved, Russia, the U.S., and um, and, and the EU, everyone's going to be weakened. The question is who's going to be weakened the most, and I think by far it's Europe. That's my argument. But But let me say this. This article says the media is failing us on Ukraine. If you look at this article from a philosophical perspective, it is an example of the media failing us on Ukraine (laughs) because they discuss what happened, how do we end the war, but what they fundamentally fail to do is address the dynamics that created the war because then they'd have to talk about empire and then they'd have to talk about whether or not empire is the right thing to do. They don't say that the U.S. imperialist intentions to A, dominate Europe, take what you may call sovereignty from all European countries and to take the uh, power to make um, decisions on foreign policy from all European countries and act in a way that's detrimental to their best interests and then to confront Russia and clearly set up an attempt to surround and strangle Russia and eventually smother it out, then they can't touch that. And so the fact that they pretend to be writing an article on behalf of addressing the problem with Ukraine without addressing the issue of imperialism, which is at the foundation of the problem, shows that they're on board with not being doing the right thing. Jim. Well, let, let me quickly give an example of that, Garland. They, they say in the piece, uh, it's time now for journalists to talk and write about at what point the goal of punishing Russia would could diverge from that goal. Then they say, for instance, If there's a way for Vladimir Putin to save face and end the war more quickly, would that be palatable to U.S. officials who are now committed to a weakened Russia, if not to regime change? Well, who is Vladimir Putin having to save face with? Because he's got 84 percent of support in his own country. So that's just an example. Go ahead. Mr. Kavanaugh. Yeah, that's exactly. It's one of the passages in it. There was another thing I said, where at least in this war, we're talking about the relationship to Iraq. So well, they're not telling, they're not lying in this war. What they're saying about this war is true. You know, and that's just nonsense. Uh, so but what, the, the premise behind this is that there's the problem, as, as, it, as you point out here, is that we have to kind of give Putin away, say, face, and to make it look like he won something that he did. This is not happening that way. 
<laughs> my, my, my recent article, Negoti- Ukraine Negotiation Kabuki, you know, there's not going to be negotiations in which one party is going to kind of get something and the other party is going to get something and everybody's going to walk away saving face and nothing will really be resolved. This Non-conditional Russia, surrender. Yeah, this is going to be, a nego- there'll be a negotiation and it'll be the terms of surrender. At, one point, at some <laughs> yeah. point, the negotiations yeah. will be negotiations over the terms of surrender of one party or the other. And as Lavrov says in, his, in the interview that I quoted from uh, February 12th or something, you know, that will be determined by the military situation on the ground. Okay? So either the military situation, will, either the, the, the Ukraine regime, but really it's the United States, right. which is behind it. Zelensky is talking. He's being controlled every day. When people don't understand that, he's on the phone on Zoom every day with Washington, with the U.S. Embassy, with the CIA and American and, uh, uh, general staff. And they're directing what to do. And at some point, either they're going to say, okay, you've got to give up Donbass. There's no negotiation about this. You either give up Donbass, declare neutrality forever, no, no NATO, or you keep fighting. <laughs> and either it's, a moment is going to come in which he's going to be forced to do that, or the Russians will, for some military reason, which could only happen if the United States intervenes directly, the Russians will be forced to say, okay, we'll slink away and we, we won't demand this, we won't demand that, maybe you can join NATO 10 years from now, and we'll go back to limited order. All the negotiations that could have happened already happened with the Minsk Agreement 1 and 2 and the Normandy Agreement, and the United States and, and the Kiev regime dismissed them and broke them, okay? So Russia isn't going to go back to a Minsk 3. They'll either be independent, independent Donbass republics, neutral, neutral Ukraine, no NATO Ukraine, and that'll be a clear loss for the American hegemony project, or the Russians will be somehow forced to, to, to slink out without getting what they wanted, which will be a clear loss for Russia. So that's what the negotiations are ultimately going to be about. And if anybody thinks that the military situation on the ground now is leading to a clear loss for Russia, <laughs> I've got a good to sell you. That's wrong. So that can only be changed by some decisive uh, intervention by the United States and NATO. The other thing that this this fails to take into account, just no matter what, this article cannot hit reality. Zelensky is not the president of um, Ukraine. He is a puppet. As the Russians said before this conflict started, when they they said, we're going to send our demands to the U.S. There's no point in talking to um, the NATO. There's no point talking to Zelensky. Zelensky, these are the people that are making the decision. So in the end, either the U.S. is going to strike a deal with NATO, which is impossible because the NATOs are, I'm going to be clear, the, the neocons are fascist ideologues, so it's impossible. They can't make a deal with Maduro. They can't make a deal with Iran. Fascists can't make a deal with anyone because their narcissism would not allow um, a, a that. In the end, the Russians are going to impose, it's on their border and their military has escalatory dominance. They will impose their will. And whatever's left over that NATO or Poland or whoever comes along and takes up some some scraps, that's the way it's got to happen. But I think that's where the Russians are. We got time. We're going to impose our will. When we're done, that's what it's going to be. You can accept that or not. That's up to you. Well, I think that's that's what the the Russians didn't go into this saying we're going to take half a loaf. They are accepted that in the Minsk agreement and it didn't work. So that's they're saying you had your chance for that. Now. Full, full, full independence and full, complete, irreversible declaration of neutrality and elimination of the NATO infrastructure. So that's, you know, 
I don't see what's going to stop him from doing that besides, as I say, but uh, a, a direct intervention of the United States. Unfortunately, there is a lot of pressure for that. There's a lot of political pressure for more military intervention by the United States. And this is where you have the threat of nuclear war. A lot of rough wrongs about it. And it's true. If the United States intervenes in this to try and stop Russia, from Russia's point of view, this is an existential, and it's correct, they're correct. If the United States succeeds in allowing, in taking over Ukraine and turning it into a NATO, which it already is doing, uh, a spearhead against Russia, then, and Russia is forced back, then Russia is going to be retreating uh, forever, and it will eventually be dismembered. So they know that, and they're going to fight about that. And this is not the same thing for the United States as a country. We're not under threat from Russia, but as an imperial hegemon, we are. And that's what... If, if I may add one more thing real quickly. And it's the same for China. China is in it every bit as deep as Russia. China knows Russia can't lose. And because Russia has escalatory military dominance on their border, NATO and the U.S. cannot impose their will militarily on them, whatever happens. And China will be in it, in my opinion, every bit as much as Russia, because it's, there's no difference. They know if Russia would lose or whatever you want to call it, that they're next. And they're, they're, so you've really get to me. You've got Russia and China saying there ain't no way that this 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 happens with a loss. Your thoughts, Jim? China is knows what's going on. They know the stakes here are the end uh, or, or the perpetuation of American imperial hegemony, dominance over the world institutions, not only fin- uh, military but economic and financial institutions of the world. And this is what's at stake now. And this is going to be the key battle in that war. This has taken on that aspect, and that's what it is. Whether we like it or not, <laughs> you know, this has become that. And that's why the Americans, neither the Americans nor the Russians, are going to want to give up and surrender on this. But one or the other of them will. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Okay. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. As we've been discussing at earlier points in the program, Biden asks Congress for $33 billion to support Ukraine through September. The $33 billion includes a request for $20.4 billion in additional security and military assistance for Ukraine, as well as additional money to fund U.S. efforts to bolster European security in cooperation with NATO allies. A lot of that sounds like the funneling of funds to American military manufacturers. What does this say about the administration's concern for Americans who can't afford gas and don't have pensions? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist, author, and uh, analyst, and he's the author of The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War, Daniel Lazar. As always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. When you read this, what came to your mind? Uh, it, it's amazing how rapidly gridlock falls away. I mean, when, when it comes to 
doing something to strengthen American society and improve conditions for workers and the poor, you know, Congress is a loggerhead. Uh, but when it comes to, like, you know, to defending the empire and channeling military aid to uh, Nazi battalions like the Azov Battalion, I mean, all, all these, all, the, the whole logjam, you know, clears up, gridlock disappears, and Congress is of one mind. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's so classically imperial in that the, the empire is content to allow conditions to rot at home. So it can defend, you know, it can defend its, its boundaries, you know, thousands of miles away. The same, you know, it brings back ancient Rome, you know, to memory. You know, it's just with this, where precisely the, the same thing happened time and again. Uh, Dan, I think this is the, it, it, what you're bringing up is, this, it's the inevitable decay of having an em- empire in that, it, you know, the inner empire has all of these tentacles, and from those, the outward edges of those tentacles, resources, you know, bananas and coffee and all of these wonderful things, things flow into the main body of the empire and they live well off it. But after a while, when their power starts to decay, all of the resources from the main body of the empire have to flow out its tentacles to the edges to keep those things going and to keep the facade that there's still an empire, the illusion alive. And what we're seeing now is a combination of the pushback of other rising powers and the um, uh, uh, the military misadventures are causing the empire to have to neglect the people at home, which is going to cause internal uprisings, and funnel money out of the empire now in the opposite direction to the outer edges to try to hold this mess uh, together. Dan? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, this is not unprecedented. You know, this is what Vietnam was was about. I mean, you know, when the U.S. was spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars, you know, to defeat the uh, Vietnamese Revolution, American cities were exploding, you know, in violence and rage, and conditions were plum- plummeting in the inner cities. So, you know, so 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 military advancement went hand in hand with domestic rot. Now, the the difference now is that is that in the 1960s, there were Vietnamese revolutionaries who America was combating. Uh, now it's now it's rushing to the aid of American of, uh, of Ukrainian Nazis who are battling a uh, you know a, a, a rival a rival power who, in my opinion, uh, is really kind of a parallel political formation. How much of this do you see as what I'll call the the price for calm? And what I mean by that is it's recognized by the administration that militarily this thing is done and that in order to prevent or offset utter rebellion in what's left of Ukraine, the United States is going to step in and be sure the heat stays on, there's bread on the table, and the lights are on. Well, the, the U.S. is trying, to, trying to, to maintain a military situation. You know, and it's, it's very hard to judge, um, you know, how that situation is really going because the press is so one-sided, so propagandistic. It's really hard to get, get good information. But my sense is the, is, the, is the war is not going nearly as well as, as, as all the – as the New York Times, the Washington Post, et cetera, et cetera, claim it's going. So, um, so, so, my, so the, 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 I think the, the Biden administration is in trouble. They've got a rush – you know, um, you know, weapons over there really fast before Ukrainian lines collapse. 
but at the same time, they can't, they can't, they can't stir themselves, you know, to, uh, to funnel, you know, to, to, to allocate aid to, to the American working class and America's poor who are in fact in deep trouble. So they're the ones who are lost in the shuffle. Um, you know, um, you know, America cares more about the the, the, the the Biden administration cares more about the Azov Battalion than it does, you know, about you know all those burnt out areas and what they call fly flyover country, the West, the Rust Belt, you know, the 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 the, the agricultural areas that are going to seed, et cetera. It's just like you know, it's 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 so self destructive um, and so short sighted. Uh, that it's really just pathetic. Well, here's another, and I think it's kind of re- related because, again, we're talking about the empire exhausting itself. Um, Chinese Defense Minister Iran trip to help lift military ties to unprecedented levels. And what we see here is, and this is an article from Global Times, and they say Iran, which opposes unilateralism, hegemonism, and external interference, firmly supports China in safeguarding its core interest. This is in Global Times. So we see these block um, against um, U.S. imperialism um, is building and it's becoming more, more and more. We see China basically saying this is becoming a military alliance. Um, your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, let's start with, a, start with the realization that, that the majority of the world's population or countries representing a majority of the world's population have refused to go along with the sanctions against Russia. Um, and, and the reason is that, is that not that they necessarily believe and, you know, not that they necessarily support what Russia has done, but they are just like, you know, just they've had it up to here with, uh, with American hypocrisy and American double dealing and America's, you know, habit of condemning other people's wars while turning a blind eye to its own. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, in Afghan, uh, the Ukraine is no better than Afghanistan or Iraq was, or the, the devastation of Syria that took place under Barack Obama, or the ongoing war in the Ukraine, you know, which, which began under Obama. And a week before the Saudis launched that war, Anthony Blinken flew to Riyadh to assure Mohammed bin Salman that America had his back. You know, so, so you know, the, the hypocrisy is so thick it can cut it with a knife. And, they, and the rest of the world is fed up. And that's why they're not going along with this. Um, and, you know, and, and, and Iran, which is, you know, which has been on the receiving end of a, of a, of a mountain of, of American hypocrisy, you know, is throwing in a slot with China, as are other nations as well. So there's a, a, a kind of a global regroupment, regroupment going on, and it's not in America's favor. And I think that right there is really the key point, because as you were talking and I'm looking at China and Iran, and then I think, well, China has, well, so in a sweeping deal to further improve bilateral political and economic ties between the two, uh, they're talking about expanding high-level strategic communication, deepening military exchanges, conducting joint exercises. China has a relationship with Russia. Iran has a relationship with uh, with Venezuela. 
China has a relationship uh, with uh, with with Pakistan and sorry, with India and 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 Iran uh, uh, and, and Russia has relationships with in the re- so we're seeing not only regional relationships develop but we're seeing international relationships strengthening that aren't going to bode well for the United States. Yeah, I, I can't see any way out of this. I mean, I mean, the, uh, the, the U.S. Is not, is not winning this war of words. It's losing. I mean, it's, uh, it's moral capital is spent. Uh, and countries like, you know, like, like, uh, like India or Pakistan or China or Iran, no, which admittedly have their own problems, their own sins, et cetera, but you know, but they have, they are just fed up with American hypocrisy and and see and see no reason to go along with the uh, with the U.S. sanctions program and you know and whereas in years past the U.S. could have forced them to heal, it can't do that anymore. I mean, yes, it it, had, it was able to over apparently it had a hand in overthrowing Imran Khan in Pakistan, but it can't do that in India. It can't do that in China. It can't do that in Iran. It can't do it in Venezuela. It can't do it in any number of countries. So, uh, so I think that America really is reaching the limits of its power. Of its power, and that's what the that's what this war is all about. I mean, the empire is is involved in a last ditch you know effort to to believe you know, to be to defend a forward salient. Uh, it's not clear if it will, will be able to do it. Uh, meanwhile, the situation in the Ukraine is in grave danger of spinning out of control and leading to a to a major catastrophe, you know. And so, the empire is in deep trouble, and the the trouble is deepening. Uh, Dan, I think the big catastrophe is going to be. And I was I've been reading a lot about this um, this uh, refugee system, and it is bad. This uh, issue, and it is bad. I tend to think that what will determine the outcome of this in the, in the immediate intermediate run, summer into the fall, is the devastating economic fallout, the devastating fallout of which will also be part of the refugee. That the internal uprisings and the mess that's going to be in Europe. And even in here, it's going to put incredible pressure on the leaders throughout the U.S. empire, so much so that that's going to be a big part of the determining factors of how this is dealt with. Your thoughts, Dan? I, I, I fully agree. I mean, I mean, there, there are millions of, of, of refugees, and, and refugees are expensive. I mean, you've got, you got to care for them. You've got to put them up. You've got to – they need social services, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the U.S. is, is while while the while the EU is is you know is receiving millions of refugees, the U.S. has agreed to take in a hundred thousand, which is like you know a piddling amount considering it's really the U.S. which started this war, and um, and the economic fallout is terrific. The U.S. will 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 actually probably wind up benefiting because it's a net it's a net energy exporter and and energy prices are rising. But, you know, but, but, but European economies, especially Germany, are going to pay a huge price. And Poland and Bulgaria will as well. That, that their crunch time for them is now starting now that, that, that Putin is cutting off their gas supplies. Um, so, you know, so, so, so the burden is not falling equally. It's falling disproportionately on the Europeans. And the Americans are actually, you know, 
making a bit of money off the deal. And, and yeah, I mean, at some point, you know, politicians in Europe are going to have to, you know, face the consequences. People are going to be really upset, really angry, and they're going to demand, you know, a, a full accounting. Uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the establishment is, is, is breathing easy now that uh, Marine Le Pen uh, just lost in France. But, you know, but that, that's not going to go on much longer. They're going to find themselves in deeper and deeper trouble as this debacle worsens. Daniel Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks very much. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 